Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Caleb Watney. Caleb is the Director of Innovation Policy at the PPI. Caleb, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on, Eric. So, Caleb, by, by way of introduction, what are sort of the, uh, the the threads that tie your work together? What is your sort of uh, your, your moonshot? No, that's a great question. So, my portfolio covers uh, a few things. One, I cover emerging technologies where the regulatory framework around them is less clear and uh, still being actively developed. So this includes things like driverless cars, drones, artificial intelligence, um, those sorts of issues. As well, I cover sort of 30,000 foot levers that we can use to increase the overall pace of uh, science and technological innovation. Um, So I've done a lot of work on high-skill immigration, uh, science funding, R&D incentives, um, and what does it kind of mean for the U.S. to think of itself as the R&D lab for the whole world? That's really interesting. I, I want to start with your your blog post you wrote late last year, cracks in, in the great stagnation, because you know it seemed you know uh, you know about a decade ago everyone was worried about the opposite. They were you know uh, Ray Kurzweil's singularity uh, you know was near. People people were concerned about that. And then sort of, you know, Peter Thiel and, and Tyler Cowen, you know, Tyler Cowen came with this book, The Great Stagnation, and, you know, Robert Gordon's book. And then it seems more recently, everyone sort of, you know, turned the uh, the other side. And and you're saying, hey, maybe, maybe that's maybe that, that's not the case. Why don't you sort of trace that? Like, what is The Great Stagnation and trace how, how the views have, have evolved before getting to your post? Right. So The Great Stagnation was, yeah, a book written by Tyler Cowen, I think, in 2012, 2013, uh, which was sort of arguing that contrary to all of the, the big public pleas that, you know, the world was accelerating faster than we knew how to deal with, um, that, you know, we were going to be rapidly losing uh, jobs to automation and all these things, that actually uh, the last 40, 50 years of productivity growth had been uh, markedly slower than it had in sort of decades past. Um, if you look from, I think, you know, 1940 to 1970-ish, uh, you're looking at total factor productivity growth, uh, which is, is like a basic overview is everything in the economy that is not just like adding more labor or more capital. So it's basically um, all the soft knowledge that we can use to make things more productively. So given the same number of inputs, can we produce more outputs? And if there's anything in sort of that, that magic missile thing, that's not just that more labor or more capital, that's total factor productivity. So it's like technology and the quality of institutions, basically? Basically, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, people have other theories for what it might be, but I think by and large, those are the, the two biggest factors that was growing at a steady 2% rate for a long time. And um, as hopefully your listeners will be aware, uh, you know, the, the magic of compounding interest and, and compounding returns means that that can lead to absolutely massive uh, rates in the standards of living over time. Um, but then from the late sort of 1970s, that's been uh, slowing down much more rapidly. There was a small boost in productivity in sort of the late 90s, early 2000s, but then again, it sort of uh, flattened off. And so my, my colleague, Eli Dorado, has uh, a graph on his website that sort of, you know, looks at total factor productivity over time, and then it sort of adds an option to say, what if we had kept at, you know, 2% uh, productivity growth rate through that entire period that we're now calling the great stagnation? And I think it's, you know, our living standards would be around like 40, 50% higher than they are currently. Um, so it would be like a pretty dramatic um, change. And I think a lot of the current ailings in our politics that feel like, you know, are things really getting better? Can I give a better world to my children? Um, can we still do positive some things in society? Kind of stem from the fact that it, it feels like we're growing less rapidly compared to the, the kind of rate of change that our, our parents or grandparents uh, grew up with. And, and maybe another way to sort of think about this is if you had been, you know, born in say 1890, 1900, and you'd fallen asleep, and then you woke up sort of in 1960, 1970, the world would look dramatically different. You know, you have automobiles, you have planes, you have indoor plumbing, uh, electricity. Uh, you know, the, the, the built urban world that we live in would just, you know, look almost like an alien planet to you. Um, but if you were to have fallen asleep in the you know late 1970s and wake up today, before noticing smartphones, the rest of the world would look, you know, mostly the same. Planes are actually flying at basically the same speed. Cars are mostly the same. They're a little bit more efficient now. A lot of the buildings that we built in the 70s and 80s are still the ones that we're living in now. We can't appear to, you know, build new big projects. So, uh, yeah, just 
the, the physical environment around us has um, slowed dramatically and, and really, yeah, smartphones and the internet is, is the one big exception to that. And so what, what happened in, in the 90s that uh, you know, got TFP up, up a bit and, and what happened in, in the early 70s that, that you know, catalyzed um, the, the downfall? Yeah, good questions. Uh, on the, the first question, what changed in sort of the 90s, early 2000s? Uh, I think our best bet is there was just a small productivity boom from sort of the application of some of these information technologies. You know, computers just make a lot of office work more efficient. Uh, you know, printers allow you to transmit information more quickly. That whole series of, you know, online databases, Microsoft Word, Excel, you know, it, it used to be college papers were, you know, typing up their papers on typewriters. And now suddenly we had Microsoft Word and we could transmit them over the Internet. So there, there of course, were productivity benefits that came from the application of those technologies to uh, the broader workforce. Um, but it ended up looking much more like a blip than maybe, um, you know, the early 1990s techno-optimists were, were predicting. And regarding your second question, what happened in the 70s to change this? That, that, that's in some ways, you know, the, the multi-million dollar uh, question or the compounding 2% growth over a 40-year question. Obviously, people have, have lots of theories. You know, um, some people like to, to blame Ronald Reagan and neoliberalism. Uh, other people, um, uh, like my, my colleague Eli Dorado, who I mentioned, uh, likes to blame, I think, the National Environmental Protection Act, NEPA, which made it much, much more difficult to actually build things in the physical world and change any of our built environments. Or there's other theories. Um, so the economist Eric Benjolfsson and his co-authors have a paper on what they call the productivity J-curve, uh, which is sort of the idea that you have these bursts and waves of innovation that you know can sort of happen first on the frontier. And then there's like a 20, 30-year period where it takes for all businesses and the rest of society to actually change the in institutional and human capital arrangements that actually make up the, the, the basic structures of institutions to, to actually apply. And so, yeah, you can have all these cutting edge advancements and there's like a 20, 30 year lag before you can actually see it show up in the productivity statistics and in the way that businesses operate because there's a lot of uh, sticking points and in institutional rigidity. Um, and I think there's some other theories, but this one maybe yeah. some of the main ones. I mean, to your earlier, you know, you, you hinted at um, this idea that, you know, if we enter a room uh, you know, 2021 versus, you know, 1973 or, or whatever it is, you, besides screens, you know, there's not that much, you know, d difference. And I'm sympathetic to that idea. At, at the same time, it feels like the screens is just such a major, you know, um, part of like how much of our day was spent looking at a screen, you know, back then, you know, not much to zero and how much of our day is spent looking at a screen. You know, now it's like all the time. <laughs> like it, it feels, so it, is that somewhat under, underplaying how big that, that change is? Yeah, I do think that there is something here. I mean, sort of critiques in this category, you could say there's maybe a mismeasurement problem. Maybe the, the productivity statistics are not accurately capturing what we want them to. And one that I am sort of sympathetic to is, yeah, the idea that if leisure quality, if, if how good it is when we're not working is basically increasing because uh, before, you know, maybe you're sitting on your porch enjoying a nice uh, evening and that's great. But uh, I guess in, in demonstrated preferences terms, people seem to really enjoy watching Netflix and uh, interacting on Twitter and being part of the culture war or whatnot. You can argue whether those <laughs> things are a good or a bad thing, but uh, people seem to prefer them at least to the, the leisure activities that we had in, in ages past. So if it is true that, yeah, our, our the amount of enjoyment we get from our leisure is increasing, that's not going to show up in sort of narrowly measured um, GDP statistics. Um, but there's maybe some reasons to, to be sort of skeptical of that. I think even if it is true, it's just the case that sort of leisure improvements can't compound and grow in the way that productive improvements do. So like every new productive uh, improvement that we can make can actually build on previous ways of productivity, which will lead to that sort of compounding effect. But we don't see seem to see the same thing with sort of improvements to leisure. Um, and so you could say maybe actually improvements to leisure just matter less on some level because it can't be, you know, subject to the same compounding returns. Yeah. Jose Luis Ricon has a, a blog post where I think he sort of doubts the, um, it was just dubious of the concept of TFP more broadly. Are, are you aware of, of his sort of, uh, you know, argument against the great stagnation idea and, and how might you respond to it? Yeah, I think broadly, I think Jose points out, you know, a, a lot of good things and there, there is sort of subjectivity to how we measure these things or what we choose to say is important or not. But I, I think just as, as one almost check, I guess, on, on a lot of these questions or thought experiments is just Rap, how, how different does the world seem to our ancestors? Um, and, and again, I think that that's sort of the power of that thought experiment of bringing somebody from 1910 to 1970 and from someone from 1970 to today. Is there's some sort of like a gut check. Like if, if 
part of the whole point of progress is that the world seems different or better in ways that it was in the past, then like you should be able to imagine the ways in which, which that would change. So again, I, I think, yeah, there's certainly parts of, of Jose's critique that I, I think make sense, but I think on, on a gut level, it does seem like we've slowed down. Yeah. Are you, uh, do you agree with Robert Gordon's sort of, or the just broader low hanging fruit? How about this? Uh, I think it's a theory to be considered, but uh, I am not all that persuaded. And I think in some sense uh, that should almost be the last hypothesis we go to um, from maybe a, um, a, a normative standpoint um, that I think there's something sort of self-fulfilling about stagnation and slower technological progress. And so almost if you were considered two hypotheses that uh, is technological slowdown inevitable uh, or is it actually a choice that we make? Um, I would much rather keep us in the mindset of it is a choice so that we actually try as hard as we can to actually break those barriers, yeah. introduce new technological changes. Because if we sort of buy into the stagnation hypothesis, if this is all inevitable, then we become complacent. We're less likely to actually make the difficult changes in our life and our, our living standards to achieve those goals. And so I, I think it's a hypothesis worth considering. And I think there's some percent chance that it's true. But I think look at this like COVID crisis. Like, uh, I, I think this is evidence that complacency is much more of a choice than we maybe think it is. You know, the fact that we're all now adopting these remote work technologies sort of en masse, and that has let us get past this sort of like social coordination function where before it was unclear to what extent you could reliably tell your office, hey, I want to work from home, I'll be just as productive, but like your boss didn't quite believe you, or are these, you know, meetings going to be um, just as good? Um, but now we as a society have all like changed at the same time. And I think it's unlocked like a new frontier of we can use remote work technologies in a way we couldn't before. And similarly, mRNA technologies were, you know, the building blocks of that, at least, were just like sitting on the sidewalk, uh, ready to be picked up. Uh, and nobody had really done it until we were forced to through this crisis. Um, so I think there, there's lots of indications um, to say that stagnation is a choice. The future is a policy choice. Yeah. And so in, in terms of what, what's explained the last 50 years, which do you think is most, uh, you know, has most explanatory power? Is it, is it regulation or institutional decay or culture? Yeah, I think it, it's, it's a combination of, I would say, regulation is certainly part of it. I think we've just become more complacent. We're less willing to put up with changes in our built environment. And that affects like not only regulations, but also just like people's willingness to take risks. You know, I, there, there's a story currently of a big offshore um, wind uh, farm that, that would go off the coast of New York. And in the process of, of actually getting that energy then back to the city, they would need to build like basically a big pipe. And uh, there's a wealthy suburb of New York that they want to build, do some minor construction so that they could put this pipe underneath the streets of this you know, wealthy suburb. But the citizens there are just so unwilling to tolerate any minor inconveniences in their, their traffic patterns of their life that they are mm -hmm. uh, you know, trying to throw up every barrier they can for this product, even though it would be dramatically positive, uh, both for them and for the larger city of New York. So I think yeah, complacency kind of sets in. Another term I've heard is that there is a um, promiscuous distribution of veto points. There's just way more people that can see, you have to get on board that can plausibly say no to a project before you can do it. I think that's an effect as well. Yeah, I think there's probably, uh, I, I guess, and then maybe a, a final factor. I think demographics is maybe underrated. The fact that we are slowly becoming an aging society, uh, you know, the, the birth rates are falling and um, like an entrepreneurialism and a, a dynamism perspective, I think has maybe underrated effects. So if you were to imagine a society where like the, the median age of the average citizen is 53 or something compared to one where the median age is 28 or 35 or something, um, the younger society is just going to have a much larger population of people that are willing to put in, you know, 12, 14 hour work weeks to really, or, or days to you try to make, get a product off the ground, to, to work really hard, to um, take on a new risky venture, to, you know, uh, go without health insurance for a little bit so that they can, you know, get a new product off the ground. Um, the, the older society also just has um, the taking risks is, is less worth it because you have fewer years to then enjoy the results of that uh, that risk. So I think, yeah, a combination of some regulations like NEPA, broad cultural complacency and an aging society demographically has just led yeah. to less risk taking and less dynamism. And, and what do you think is the best um, explainer, demographics could be one, but of, of just the cultural nimbyism that you sort of uh, allude to relative to, you know, people 50 years ago? Yeah, I mean, part of it is just we like have more. It's, it's harder to give up comfort and uh, when you're like used to just a higher living standard. And so part of this may be sort of um, somewhat inevitable insofar as, uh, yeah, like conveniences are more inconvenient when you're starting at a higher standard of living. Yeah. And so talk about your post. W what are the cracks in, in the great stagnation? 
Yeah. So I, I guess I want to be somewhat careful here in saying that, you know, we can't say that the Great Stagnation is over yet. I, I, I mean, obviously, there's a number of ways you can maybe decide when is the Great Stagnation over. You could look at broad TFP numbers. You could, yeah, try to imagine, like, how dramatically different does the world look like compared to, uh, you know, when your grandparents were alive. I actually think maybe that would be an interesting way of maybe coming up with like a, a broad cultural method is like how angry or how uh, different does the world seem to grandparents and maybe create some index where you, you ask them, you know, how dramatically different does the world seem? And that would be one way of trying to get at this, uh, this question. But of course, any new potential uh, changes to that is going to start in the form of anecdotes. And so I, I'm trying to be, you know, carefully considering what are the, the potential technologies that could really get us out of this. Um, and so, as in particularly technologies that would maybe affect the physical world, given that that's where this lowdown has been. Um, so, for the last you know five, eight years, one of the big maybe hype stories or areas where we could get out of the great stagnation potentially, at least in one area, is driverless cars. Um, and I, I think driverless cars have really suffered from the the technological hype cycle, where they were maybe you know built up too early. Um, some some companies were very ambitious in their their testing timelines, and then those didn't happen. And now sort of, uh, especially a lot of elite, you know, journalists or, or um, trendsetters or policymakers are sort of uh, disillusioned with the promise of driverless cars. And there's almost a tendency to say, oh, well, it's just like an impossible problem we're never going to, to get at. And I wonder how much of that is, is partially just like media expectations. Um, the fact that the, the latest cutting edge advancements from a technical lab can now be broadcast around the world in a matter of hours changes the public's expectancy of when those technologies are coming in a way that didn't happen in like the 1970s and 1980s. So I, I think, yeah, there's, there's less of a grace period for technologies now um, than there used to be, but there's still dramatic change. I think that, that that's potentially happening with driverless cars. You've seen probably the most advanced company is Waymo. They've been deploying in the uh, Phoenix, Arizona area for several years now. I think at the end of last year, when I, when my post came out, they just recently launched a fully autonomous taxi service where there is no human driver in the front seat. And this is kind of the first time that, that we'd really seen that. And I think to me indicated that we had moved from a, if driverless cars are ever going to work out to a, when driverless cars are going to work out. It was sort of like a proof of concept definitively, uh, you know, in the wild that this kind of service could work. And now there's the sort of hard engineering problem of how do we scale this to other domains? How can we increase, you know, service to, to other areas? And it's not going to look like something where you just like flip a switch. We've solved the AI problem. Now we can have driverless cars everywhere. It's almost going to look more, I think, like a um, like a cell phone broadband map or, or something where there's actually like a lot of rigorous um, validation testing that has to happen in each region before you can roll out driverless cars in that vicinity. But like the fundamental promise of the technology is still there, right? You still have 40,000 fatalities a year from uh, human drivers, 93% of which uh, NHTSA deems to be from human failure. Uh, it's still like a dramatic waste of human time that people are spending stuck in traffic when they could be doing other productive things, whether it be working, reading the news, maybe they're getting home early so they can spend time with their family. And I guess just from like a transportation level, there's like a lot of people that struggle to get around, you know, whether uh, they're disabled or they're blind or they just don't have access physically to a car for financial reasons. Like you can also dramatically decrease the cost when, you know, you remove the labor component of uh, driving as well. So uh, I, I don't want us to lose sight of the original promise of driverless cars. They have been overhyped in the past, but I think they're still coming. Uh, and it would be, it will be a dramatic change to our, our built physical environment and how we, we tangibly move around the world uh, once they come. I think Tyler once said that, the, I don't know if he was joking, the great signature would be over once once we have driverless cars. Like I, I think he also is, is believable. Are you um, in agreement with the uh, line of thinking that we've had a, a slowdown in, in science? I guess the broader question is like, how much of the slowdown is, you know, whether in science or technology versus commercializing uh, and, or is both? I think it's been both. So um, yeah, there's been a couple of papers that have tried to, to get at this. Um, Tyler Cowan and Ben Southwood had a good sort of review of the evidence of kind of, uh, is science slowing down? Um, there was also a famous paper a few years ago, are ideas getting harder to find? You know, you can look at how many scientists does it take to be on a team to, um, you know, come up with the next big um, breakthrough, um, theoretically, uh, how far apart are those, um, you know, basically how many scientists and how much time are we having to pour into each uh, incremental advancement to get the next unit of scientific breakthrough. And a lot of that sort of corresponds well with maybe a Gordon story of uh, low hanging fruit. Now it's getting harder and harder. Um, but I think, again, that's sort of premature to say, I think 
We've also ha had a lot of rigidity in the way that we fund science and the kind of science funding institutions uh, that we have. You're seeing that the average age of principal researchers is continuing to get older and older. Um, the amount of time that uh, principal researchers are spending on grant-related compliance and maintenance is getting older, or is getting you know longer and longer. There was one report that said it's like 42% of the principal researchers' time is spent on these sort of grant-related um, compliance issues. It's concentrating in just a handful of major universities, uh, and it's actually just concentrating in universities overall. Um, I think universities are a very important part of the science funding ecosystem, but maybe we've sort of doubled down too much just on universities being the sole way that we fund science. You could sort of think that maybe every kind of institution has its own biases in one direction or another. Uh, I think academically funded research is going to maybe have a bias towards things that are easily publishable, things where you have a high likelihood of success so that you can then get citations and move towards your tenure track job, things that are maybe funded by the, the federal government are going to have a bias towards spending or things that have a clear national security valence, uh, things that are funded by the private sector are going to have a, a bias towards things that are easily commercializable. And so, you know, every kind of institution is going to have its own biases, but I think we actually get closer to maybe an optimal mix of incentives when we diversify science funding. And that is in many ways the opposite direction that our science funding apparatus has been moving towards. We're just leaning more and more on universities through the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health as like, this is the way that we fund science. And so I'd love this to see, you know, a lot more experimentation. New Zealand has been doing some interesting things with lotteries, uh, where basically so long as you meet some minimum threshold of quality, instead of having to go through this lengthy grant review process. Instead, it's just sort of almost uh, literally taken out of a hat in, in some cases, um, so long as you meet you know, certain thresholds of quality. And uh, it doesn't seem like there's any decline in the quality of research that's being funded through that. And the researchers themselves find that they have more time to be spending on it. And obviously you can get funding decisions made much more quickly. Um, and so that's almost like an interesting like outside external test of how useful is this whole process of this, this lengthy, rigorous grant review process? Is this adding much value at all? I'm sure it's adding some on the margin, but at the very least, we should be trying to almost turn the scientific method itself on how we fund science um, and try a lot more experimentation, randomization, see what works out and scale the things that work in small experiments. And if we did that, I think we would then have a lot more evidence on whether or not science is actually slowing down. Because what we can say is that science is slowing down given our specific set of institutions. Um, but we've just kind of been doubling down the set of institutions we have. I think it, it's premature to make broader claims about science in general. Yeah. And so what you're saying is if you could wave a wand and change how, how science is funded, you would move from a centralized sort of homogenous uh, way of doing it to a, um, you know, decentralized and more diversified approach. Now, uh, paint, paint more of a picture of, 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 of how we do it today. Like what is a pie chart of, of you know who, who, how funding works and 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 what you would want it to look more more like. Sure, if you look at overall macro level trends of uh, science and R and D spending, you're seeing it is actually uh, especially public support for it is lowering as a percent of GDP since I think the sort of late '60s were the high watermark, um, and that's both on sort of the basic side as well as the applied side. Um, applied side, a lot of that is happening sort of in DARPA, uh, DoD level um, labs as well as uh, the national labs. And then basic is mostly just in the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health are sort of the, the two biggest um, trends we have there. And uh, there's sort of a constant, I think, in incentive pull somewhat to, to go more towards applied things. At least that's a sort of, I think, what the science community is concerned about, that uh, you can always drag, you know, individual uh, scientists or grant makers in front of Congress and say, why are you spending $2 billion to sp study these underwater crab dances? You know, what relevance does that have? But of course, that ignores, you know, the fact that a lot of our scientific discoveries are serendipitous. And by pulling from odd places in nature, we can actually end up discovering a lot more about the origins of the world. And that this kind of curiosity-driven basic science system does end up leading to uh, understandings of the world that allow us to then uh, actually make those actionable and, and improve the world around us um, further down the line. Um, you know, a lot of projects like the Human Genome Project and other uh, understandings of the human uh, immunome have been very fundamental for our current mRNA projects, as an example. So uh, that's sort of the, the, the trend so far. Um, I would like us to, yeah, we can beef up existing institutions. Again, I think as like a percentage of GDP, we're probably vastly underspending. I'm basically not concerned about diminishing marginal returns. I, I think that the political constraints for how much we could feasibly spend are always going to come before we would actually start to hit the diminishing marginal return where the next dollar R&D would actually be better spent not on R&D. 
Um, so as much as it's physically possible, I'd love to shift more spending towards R&D. I do think that there is something to the idea that uh, some of these translational problems, things that almost fall between basic and applied science get um, short end of the stick right now. And so maybe we should have uh, more funding institutions specifically on those problems. Um, Adam Marblestone, who is um, a researcher uh, with Schmidt Futures, and uh, I think he wrote a paper for the Federation for American Scientists on the idea of focused research organizations, which are trying to attack these um, sort of translational issues or areas that don't clearly fall in either basic or applied, or sometimes you almost need a better set of, of tools to then attack basic science problems. So for example, uh, to have a better understanding of how consciousness works and how the brain works, uh, our, our existing toolkits to just map the brain are, are really underdeveloped. But if you think of how do we understand consciousness as being a why question, sort of basic science, and then how do we map the brain is a, a very applied problem. It's actually a, an, an applied problem you need to solve in order to do a lot more basic science funding. Um, and there's not like, clear institutions that would have the mandate to, to tackle some of those in-between problems. And so I, I like the idea of focused research organizations as uh, one way of trying to get at those. I think we should probably be experimenting more with some of these DARPA models where you have strongly empowered uh, program managers who have the ability to you know, rapidly hire and fire people, uh, take on new, new projects without a lot of bureaucracy. And I think there's also something to the idea of definite timelines that oftentimes bureaucracies can sort of become sustained or, or exist to make their, their existing programs persist over time, even where it's no longer necessary. And so another example from uh, focused research organizations that I like is it's sort of set, you know, five to seven years to work on this very specific high, hard applied problem. And then after that, once you've given your specific deliverable, focused research organizations going to be dissolved. And then maybe you can, you know, fund some new ones later down the line. But I, I think those are all elements of science funding that we should be trying more. Yeah. And what about um, the, the Bell Labs model slash just more broadly, like how much, you know, how do we think about private versus, versus public? No, that's a great question as well. There, there's a lot of interesting questions about why did the industrial research lab decline? Um, and some people, I think, think it was almost a result of a, a near monopoly then that basically you had a bunch of excess rents that were being uh, created by a, a, a national level monopoly or a very, a monopoly over a broad set of technologies. And then um, because you had basically, it was capturable then upstream, if you made some you know, new breakthrough in applied mathematics, because you had such a broad layer of this whole technology stream, you could guarantee you were actually gonna benefit from that and it's gonna become profitable. And so places like, yeah, Bell Labs and Xerox Park were able to spend very lavishly on basic research because they had a broad enough swath of the, the downstream pool that they felt like they could capture it. So that's sort of one theory. I think another thing is just, it's become more competitive, basically, the technology sector. Um, it's just harder and harder to almost, like in a zero to one sense, maintain that monopoly for a long period of time that would make basic science funding worth it. And so uh, I think that that's in some sense a problem. You could say like a lot of these basic science things are just not capturable enough. And so one way you, you could feasibly try to get around that is to try to incentivize more basic scientists to work in uh, corporate settings, but basically subsidize their salary. Um, so I haven't formally written this up yet, but I've been playing around the, with the idea of something like a, a basic R&D tax credit, which could layer on top of the existing R&D tax credit. You could you could think about our current R&D system as being very narrow in how much it covers. It only covers basically uh, like the, the expense is no longer taxable, but you still have to physically take on the expense. Um, but it covers a very wide set of possible expenses because the IRS doesn't want to get super into the nitty gritty of saying that this counts as R&D and this doesn't. So you can say or layer maybe on top of that, a basic science credit, which does the opposite. It's very deep in how much it covers, but it's very narrow in the scope of what it covers. Um, and so hypothetically, if you were willing to take on a academic scientist or someone who all of their research was going to be public or, or being published in peer-reviewed journals, uh, maybe the public is going to be willing to take on 70, 80% of their salary costs. And if you set up an incentive like that, I'd be very curious to see what kinds of organizations, what kinds of companies would then be willing to take on basic scientists, embed them deeply into their industrial processes and see what kind of new um, products or, or new kind of insights we could get. Yeah. You wrote this blog post sort of untangling innovation policy and um, all the sort of sub buckets that, that get lumped on, under industrial policy. Can, can you talk about why it's important to untangle what sort of people get get, get wrong when, when they think about that? Sure, yeah. So I, this was a, a post I was trying to... Um, 
there, there were just a lot of frustrating conversations I felt like happening in DC around uh, the need to bring back industrial policy. Um, and there's certainly some things that people call industrial policy that I would be you know, very on board with, but I just didn't think it was a, a useful term. I thought it was muddying too many sort of discrete topics or, or conversations. And I thought mostly on a linguistic sort of discussion level, it would be better to almost say, okay, we're not going to talk about industrial policy because people mean too many different things when they talk about that. Instead, we're going to drill down into like, well, what is the actual thing? And so you can talk about uh, trade policy. You can talk about active labor market policy. You can talk about export subsidies. You can talk about basic science funding, and that actually having the conversation more rooted to this specific uh, market failure, externality uh, that you're actually talking about will lead to sort of better effects. And so that was the the main point of the post and trying to um, say, you know, when when everything from Elizabeth Warren's co-determination to, you know, a a, a broad strategy of of specifically not regulating so that you can, you know, get more technologies when, when both of those fall under uh, industrial policy, then maybe it, it's too broad a term and it's just not that useful. Yeah. And what is, um, what do people get wrong when they even just think within the scope of innovation policy, w- w- what makes great innovation policy and, and where, where do you see uh, people advocating for ba- in, in innovation policy that frustrates you? Yeah, that's a good question. So when I think about it, innovation policy, I'm trying to specifically think about what are the um, externalities or market failures that result from information production not being sufficiently rewarded or not being capturable enough. Um, And so uh, there's a a famous paper by William Nordhaus that estimates that innovators or inventors on average capture, I think it's 3% of the total surplus value of their inventions. Um, And so, you know, if you think about, say, Steve Jobs creating, you know, the iPhone, and obviously that was bigger than just Steve Jobs, but to use him as an example, uh, Apple obviously captured, you know, some percentage of that in the form of Apple is now a very valuable company. They've made lots of sales, but um, customers would have been willing to pay a lot more for that than they would have. And also other competitors were able to sort of in, in some ways start producing their own versions of the iPhone. And that combination of um, other competitors can come in and compete away your rents. And also uh, customers are, are paying some small percentage of what they would hypothetically be willing to pay means that inventors are actually maybe being under uh, compensated for the uh interesting discoveries that they're making or, or new you know, ways of combining things in a way that that's socially useful. And so there, there's a number of ways of trying to get to that. Some people focus really strongly on intellectual property rights um, so that you can try to you know, create temporary monopolies to uh, reward the, the creation of these uh, new inventions. Um, but some of the problems with that is that in certain areas, new inventions are actually just very com- combinatorial, where if you kind of just almost at random take insights from various areas and build on them on top you know, like almost imagine Lego blocks or something, then that creates the new thing. And if you then are having to pay a tax on every surcharge of each Lego block that you're building on, it ends up being very expensive and disincentivizing things. So I think intellectual property is a useful model for incentivizing innovation in some areas, but maybe less uh, useful in other areas. Like it seems pharmaceuticals right now seem like a clear success story of of, uh, intellectual property, whereas maybe software development is, is more of that iterative combinatorial Lego block model where uh, software patents seem much less useful. I think maybe one area where people go wrong is in uh, one trying to, to say we want like some specific technology and then just throwing a bunch of resources at that because usually one by the time you recognize that some technology is important the private sector is presumably also going to be throwing investment funds at that and two, oftentimes the, the things that you should actually be concerned about are maybe things that you're not thinking about. And uh, so right now, I would expect that there's going to be a dramatic surge of investment to prevent future pandemics. And that's great, but we're probably not thinking as much about what are the future harms from supervolcanic eruptions or forum asteroids or forum a solar flare that you know wipes out the electrical grid um, and sort of very top down, we have specific technology area X that we want to invest in or that we want to um, you know, make progress in. I, that's not necessarily bad, but that can't be the sole focus of your agenda. You have to have sort of these broader curiosity-driven investments or, or areas that, that take a diversity of approaches so that you can still be investing in areas where maybe policymakers, it's not sexy to be thinking about those things, but it will still really matter down the road. Yeah. I, I want to zoom out and return to what we were talking about earlier around culture. How, how do you think we get out of our cultural malaise? Good question. So Eli Dorado, again, I feel I've mentioned it a couple of times, but he wrote a piece recently saying that um, complacency is sometimes the, the antithesis of crisis. And so that in crisis times, we'll sort of inevitably be forced to 
um, draw on new inventions or things that we otherwise wouldn't have wanted to take on the costs. And so I think crisis is one way, but it it would be great if we could. uh, So we need a war? Well, saying? hopefully not. I mean, war, war and, and, and pandemics are going to be one surefire way of strike, uh, of getting rid of complacency. But it would be great if we could um, get rid of complacency without having to do wars or pandemics. And uh, so I, I think one interesting thing here is what is the importance of a shared cultural vision of progress and of technological advancements? And how important is that towards reaching you know new uh, high heights? And so you hear a lot of stories about how you know today is uh, big company founders, be it Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, you know, grew up reading sci-fi and they were very inspired by those stories and they wanted to end up building, you know, those systems that they were reading about. And so some people hypothesize that, yeah, maybe we should have much more optimistic sci-fi as a way of trying to um, inspire the next generation. And that if we culturally are, are thinking about and spending a lot of time uh, sort of raising our collective sights of what we want our society to reach, then more people will actually try doing that. Um, and I, I think there's probably something to that Although I do wonder to what extent um, sci-fi or optimistic sci-fi is a lagging versus a leading indicator of economic progress. So if, if you look in China, for example, a lot of their sci-fi is more optimistic than ours. The, the three-body problem is you know, one of the main examples where there are external threats, but technology copes and sort of plans on this industrial level as a way to overcome those threats. And, and so it's, it's a more optimistic vision of, of humanities uh, interfacing with technology. That came after, you know, decades of material progress beforehand. And so I wonder if sometimes people dream of more optimistic futures after they themselves have experienced lots of change in their their physical environment while they've lived. And so, yeah, to what extent positive optimistic science fiction is a lagging or leading indicator of economic growth, I think is still kind of up for debate. But I would imagine it kind of does both. Maybe it, it both arrives after decades of progress, but then it also helps sustain progress by sort of giving a vision of the future that new innovators want to aspire towards. Do you feel similarly optimistic about sort of the capacity, the state capacity, basically, our argument as well? Like, I, I guess I'm curious, what led to the stagnation? You know, people say we can never build the Manhattan Project today. Um, but, you know, like, what is it about 1950 to 2021 that led to this, you know, sort of like state capacity um, deterioration versus like that didn't lead to it between 1880 and 1950 or something? Yeah, it's a good question. Part of it, I wonder how much of this is just like new institutions are going to be more effective than old institutions. If one of the main roles uh, or points of like bureaucracy is in some sense to solidify informal processes into more formalized things that you can write out down and then pass on to a successor, you end up inevitably like losing a lot of things in that process, in that translational process, or maybe you become too rigid. Uh, you know, like previous grant makers could sort of know, oh, this is the rough goal we're trying to get at. We have these rough, you know, guidelines and suggestions, but like use some amount of common sense as you're trying to judge, you know, what's strictly necessary or not. But then in the process of formalizing these things, it becomes more rigid, less ability sort of shift on the margin and, and you know, wipe away things that aren't necessary. Um, and so, yeah, part of me wonders if, if like institutional renewal does inherently rely on some amount of turnover. And so, Science funding seems like the kind of thing where you could constantly be experimenting and trying, okay, we're going to try this new funding model. We're going to create a new organization. We're going to see if it works well. If it does, we can expand it and maybe we can wind down other ones. Um, In other areas that seems less um, feasible, I don't know, like a lot of the point of maybe regulatory institutions, especially is to provide stability across time. You can know, hey, we can invest in this area. Uh, We know the regulations are going to be stable. So you can't be, I mean, or maybe you could, but it, it seems more difficult to say, create a new uh, FAA and get rid of the, the old one. But um, I, I do wonder, yeah, how much of that, that institutional vibrancy came from just the fact that these were new institutions and sort of the original people that were coming in there uh, were very ambitious. Do we, yeah, it's like, do we just have to retire? Is there a rule to institutions that they just can't live past a certain, a certain age or, you know, Abology had this post recently, founding versus, versus inheriting. And, and, and Sam Obergia writes a lot about the successor problem. And yeah, I guess it's something we'll, we'll have to figure out. Yeah, and maybe one way you could get around that is trying to give uh, younger people who are going into the agencies just more ability to change things. Like I, I'm thinking if, if you were like an ambitious person trying to think about science funding, it almost seems like the National Science Foundation is not the kind of place you'd want to go right now because it's so rigid, because there's so little ability for you as an individual to actually shift the, the inertia of the organization. And so if these organizations were... Uh, just encouraged or maybe forced to on the margin, just experiment with their models more and to empower 
uh, younger, ambitious people to actually make changes, I think that would end up attracting a different caliber of people that right now just don't want to go into places where they can make no feasible change. And connected to that, I think you should also be paying a lot more, um, you know, for, for good civil servants and making it easier to, to fire ones that are maybe just sticking around for the sake of sticking around, uh, which I think is, is a broader problem than, you know, just science funding, but is maybe just a, a broader civil service thing. One thing you talked a, a, a lot about earlier is the importance of demographics. And you've also written, you know, you've written a lot about immigration, you know, uh, some about, you know, fertility rates. Um, you, you wrote a post about Matt Iglesias' book, One Billion Americans, and, and how we should take it seriously. What, what do you think he gets right? And, and where do you sort of di- differ from him, from him? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a good book. And uh, it was one of the first things that I'd seen, like, taking seriously the idea that demographic decline is a problem from sort of just a pure, like, economic perspective. Um, and the fact that, especially, and also maybe as a, as a national security foreign policy objective, that if we want America to be kind of the uh, the global leader that it has been in the past that requires taking seriously the fact that more people means more power. I mean, uh, the fact that right now you're seeing the NBA and, you know, other Hollywood movie studios sort of catering their their markets to China is partially a result of the fact that they have a very large domestic market that people want to be catering towards. Um, and so population heft ends up sort of downstream shaping a lot of cultural and economic things. And, and so I, I was glad to see the book, yeah, take seriously those sorts of considerations. Uh, if anything, almost the, the the problem, so to speak, with the book is that uh, if you took the the recommendation seriously, I don't know that it would be enough to, to tangibly get us to one billion. If if that is the the specific goal, partially because it seems like um, at least within the rates that would be politically feasible, doing more things like child tax credits or making it financially easier for parents to have the number of children they say they want to have, just internationally there there's limited evidence about how much success that has. I, I think it's worth doing, and it would probably help push it up on the margin, but. Um, you know, even just simply getting back to a replacement rate would be an enormous success uh, from uh, a replacement rate perspective. But that means that the tangibly actually growing um, would require serious immigration, basically. And I think there's a lot of um, political uh, hesitancy to embrace like massive immigration, um, which I, I think is is partially a problem for the, the vision. Um, maybe my my single biggest thing I, I would have liked to see the book tackle more is uh, the ways in which federalism or some decentralized governance might enable uh, people to feel like we can, you know, take in new people without losing some sense of identity. Um, so one of the more promising immigration approaches that I've seen is um, Adam Ozimek and, and uh, co-authors wrote a paper on uh, the idea of a heartland visa, which would actually give more autonomy to local regions to basically dictate their own immigration flows and say, hey, uh, it seems like right now we're really facing a shortage of nurses and doctors. We'd like to specifically allow more immigrants of you know, that have those kinds of skill sets into our region. And that um, if this sort of like lost feeling of control is in many ways one of the biggest drivers of political backlash, then by directly confronting that and giving some amount of local economy, maybe you could enable a political equilibrium that leads to, you know, higher rates of immigration. Yeah. Can you explain the differences? Certainly the rhetoric is extremely different, um, but the differences in actual policy between sort of immigration policy between like Biden, Trump, and Obama? Um, yeah, I mean, so there's there's rhetoric and then there's actual yeah, yeah policy differences. So one thing that we're stuck with is the fact that Congress just seems to be fundamentally incapable or at least unwilling to do any sort of congressional reform. You know, the last big congressional bill we saw on immigration happened, I think, in like the late 90s. And there just has not been any new immigration uh, guidance since then. And fundamentally, immigration is supposed to be the purview of uh, the, the legislature and not the executive. And so there's sort of like limited avenue for reform that just the executive could do. I think Obama was trying to sort of signal to uh, the more hardline members of the Republicans that, hey, look, I'm gonna be deporting people and taking these problems of illegal immigration seriously. That way I can build up enough political capital to actually pass some sort of, uh, for whatever reason that didn't end up happening. Um, and so, yeah, in retrospect, his, his record actually looks like pretty bad in terms of number of deportations and whatnot. Trump came in and, I mean, I, I don't know how much he nominally cared about this and how much of this was like Stephen Miller behind the scenes, basically. He, he realized that uh, while there is this congressional deadlock, there's actually a host of sort of executive levers that you can pull um, using executive leniency to basically just like everywhere I can find, I want to like pull the lever for less immigration, less immigration, less immigration. And now the Biden administration has come in and they're undoing some of those, but they're not being as aggressive as, as at least Stephen Miller was and going in the opposite direction. Although I would note, and, and this might be especially relevant um, for, for your audience, 
one really positive change that happened recently and that I've written about is uh, the international entrepreneur rule. Um, so this was a parole rule that went into effect at the end of the Obama administration. Um, and basically, the United States has no startup visa, has no category for people who want to start companies that aren't independently wealthy to build a found company in the United States um, before getting a green card. Um, and so the international entrepreneurial rule was trying to create a parole rule that if you could get uh, 250K in, in investment from a qualified U.S. investor who had a two and a half year period in the United States trying to build your business and you could get a renewal for that if it was successful. And, you know, eventually that would hopefully lead to getting a green card um, through like a, an EB1 or something. And then Trump came in and immediately froze the program as kind of maybe would have been expected. Um, and I think like a total of 10 people applied or something, but it was never formally rescinded. It was just basically frozen. Um, and then just recently in the last couple of uh, weeks, uh, Biden brought it back. And I think it, it's a really promising avenue, especially for the venture capital community to get involved in helping more international entrepreneurs get in. Um, they're looking at things to make it easier for sort of repeat applicants to be able to show, hey, look, we're a qualified investor. We've invested in this person. Now let's invest in this next person without having to do all the same paperwork again and create some sort of more yeah. durable qualified investor. But um, I think that's a, that's a really exciting program. Obviously, it's, it's still very temporary. It can be easily undone by future presidents. So ideally, we'd like to you know, solidify that through, um, through, through Congress. Um, but it, it is a positive recent change that's happened. Yeah. So it, it seems obvious to me um, that we should make it as easy as possible for high-skilled um, or even high-potential uh, you know, immigrants to come to the U.S. and not only make it easy, we should, you know, to your point, uh, what do you call it, pro-immigration? Pro-immigration, yeah. So uh, I wrote this piece for for uh, the New Atlantis um, arguing that we should even move beyond this sort of um, tentative, passive, like, oh, we will grudgingly accept your right. world-class scientists and engineers. Instead, we should be trying to very proactively um, attract international talent um, to the United States recognizing that this has historically been the way that the United States has really built its uh, supremacy in science and, and technology. And so that the piece kind of outlines three major waves of talent that arrived during the 20th century, uh, mostly from uh, Europe. There was a pretty like massive wave, uh, especially of uh, uh, Jewish scientists that were dismissed from uh, German universities that made up, I think, like 63% of their, their citations in physics that uh, a lot of them ended up coming to the United States. There was a, a pity quote that the United States and the Allies won World War II because our Germans were better than their Germans, um, which kind of, I think, goes to show like how important this, this infusion of international talent was. And so uh, borrowing a term from a uh, friend and economic historian, Anton Howes, pro-migration or promigration would be a proactive approach to migration, which tries to actively recruit international scientists and engineers and technical practitioners to the United States. Um, either through promises of citizenship or active financial incentives, um, but just basically recognizing how important these flows are to the United States, and not just to the United States, but almost to the global progression of science. Um, there was a recent paper that came out that if you look at sort of, you know, teenage medalists and some of these math competitions, that it is this international math competition, the medalists who moved to the United States ended up being six times more productive than medalists that moved to other countries. Um, and so this isn't just sort of a rah-rah, go America. This is like the United States is at the cutting edge, the frontier of a lot of these technical and scientific fields. And because of agglomeration effects, if we can pull all these scientists into, you know, these research clusters, they can all become more productive and we can actually move out the frontier more quickly. What would constitute a very effective, if you were in charge of this uh, department, you know, what, what strategies would, would, you, would you recommend? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, one of the first things is changing some of the incentive structures for immigration agents. Um, so right now, uh, a lot of these immigration offices are housed within the Department of Homeland Security. And it means that there's been, almost it, it, it's a national security culture. You have, you know, ex-military people who are then coming over to um, U.S. immigration enforcement and sort of, you know, running and screening the candidates there. And the, the attitude is very much one of how can I prevent letting in terrorists rather than how can I maximize the growth potential of the United States? Um, and so I think as a, as a first step, you almost need to house this thing either outside of DHS or to have some amount of you know, institutional autonomy that allows you to hire in almost, you want like talent scouts, right? Like a lot of corporations will have whole departments that are trying to actively recruit the best and brightest people. Um, the United States should maybe be hiring those people or, or uh, people that can be, you know, looking at international journals and seeing who the brightest minds are and trying to actively uh, recruit them to the United States. Um, and so that could be housed at, you know, the Department of State or whatnot. You, you could even imagine if you wanted to, you know, go extra, 
um, providing financial incentives to uh, to immigration, uh, you know, these, these talent scouts basically for attracting uh, the most talented people. If you can find, uh, you know, an up and coming um, Indian teenager who then founds a company in the United States and uh, it, you know, wins some awards, then you, you as an individual immigration agent actually win some sort of financial compensation uh, because the incentives are just so out of whack right now. Everything you said just seems super ob- obvious in that it's our in our own self-interest to get the smartest people in the world to to come here. Now, my question is, are you, are you a total open borders person a- across <laughs> the board in the way that I, I think Brian Kaplan is? Like, does it make sense to infinitely just take in anyone in the world who, who, who wants to come here? My understanding is that the, the Democrats were against immigration and, up until very recently because there were arguments that it affected the working class and that, you know, from a humanitarian perspective, I understand why, you know, it would make you'd want to bring in people, but from a pure, you know, self-interest of working class Americans, are you sympathetic to any arguments as to why you wouldn't want to have a total open borders policy? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough question. So I think personally on like a moral level, the, the, like the pure moral logic of open borders is pretty hard to like uh, fight against. And I, I, I mean, maybe this is just because I have policy brain and I work in DC, but um, I'm just so focused on sort of the, the political barriers that even though like I, I find the, the the moral logic of open borders pretty compelling, I don't spend like much time thinking about it or really advocating for it because I, I just think we're so far away from there that practically any attempt to to sort of you know dramatically throw open the borders would probably lead to a political backlash that would actually be pretty harmful to the long term. So I almost think think about how can we in a politically sustainable way increase the total number of immigrants that can come to the United States, uh, and so. That is maybe you know some version of open borders, but it would still be dramatically uh, you know different from you know, Ryan Kaplan's view. But that's why I think some of these things that try to give regional autonomy or try to very clearly show you know this is in the interests of the um, of the U.S. are going to be the the most like politically feasible at least in the short term. Yeah, um, there's one argument that working class Americans you know do, does it affect some of their way some working class Americans' wages um, or, or 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 job loss? Yes or no? So I think some people try to say, you know, it's, it's better for all people at all times. And I think other people try to say, hey, it's, it's worse for some individual Americans, but better for like US GDP or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the empirical record is, is sort of confusing on this just because we haven't had that many like mass, you know, increases in immigration over time. Uh, the the Mario Boatlift experiment is, you know, the one that's probably gotten the most study. And it seems like the consensus there is this was on the whole very beneficial to most people. There are maybe some small categories of, you know, high school dropouts that were natives that, um, you know, did end up seeing a small decrease in wages. Um, what I think gets to, I, I would say, so if we did like dramatically increase immigration, it would not surprise me that in the same way, uh, you know, free trade is on the whole beneficial, but can have some regional losers. It's important to have system level uh, safety nets, basically that can capture, that can catch those people, help them get reintegrated into society. Friend Sam Hammond has written, you know, the idea of the free market welfare state, the idea that actually free markets and uh, social welfare programs are compatible and actually complementary insofar as you can secure political buy-in for a more dynamic society when people feel like I'm not literally going to be starving on the street um, if I somehow lose my job. So I think that's important. And then I think the other element that is underrated that I think is starting to get more attention now is the importance of full employment and tight labor markets as a way of actually giving workers more leverage in a lot of negotiations with employers. Um, and so, yeah, the importance of getting labor market policy right, monetary policy right, I'd like us to see maybe active labor market policy where we, especially for people that have been long-term unemployed or for people that are just recently, you know, coming out of the incarceration system, like they, they should actually, the employers that are willing to take a risk on them should get an active uh, credit to basically help pay part of their salary because the, the long-term detrimental effects of unemployment are just so large. And so I think there, there's a lot more we could do to try to help get native-born workers that have been traditionally disenfranchised back into the system. But it is, it is something to think about. I, I don't think we can just wave a magic wand and pretend that there's no downsides. Yeah. Um, in the Patrick Carlson interview with, with Noah Smith, Patrick uh, says that we should make sure not to combine regional development policy with, with, with science policy. Do you have a take on that? Uh, yeah, I think in general, that makes sense. And that um, oftentimes some of these things can become muddied. And this is maybe actually another criticism tying back a little bit to industrial policy that in the effort to do like three or four things at once, you'll actually end up doing none of them uh, very well. And so insofar as it is possible, I think it is it is wise to try to keep these things separate and focus on what is the most efficient science policy? How can we do that? And then what's the most efficient way that we can actually help all regions feel like they're being uh, benefiting? 
um, and try to do that. I recognize that sometimes for political reasons, you have to bundle these things. And so, you know, you can have on the, the object level, what's the ideal way of having these things. And then you can have political compromises where sometimes you have to bundle these things in maybe slightly less efficient ways. Um, but having the goal of trying to handle these things slightly separately, I think is, is a good one. Yeah. What have we learned? We talked about immigration. That's one set of demographics. What have we learned about why fertility rates are falling and what can we do to change that? Should we want to? Yeah. I mean, it's a really hard problem. Uh, it seems like it's almost like a universe or a, a global constant that as incomes rise, um, as we have, you know, more female participation in the labor force, which is a great thing. Um, and you know, as, as women all over can feel like they have more autonomy and control over their lives and careers, um, that just, you know, it becomes harder to have the number of children that people say they want to have. And I, I think that that's an important thing to focus on. The goal here is not to like force people that don't want to have children to have children. Um, it's just, we, we can see in survey evidence that people say they would like to have two or three kids who are then in actuality have a winning, having one or two kids. And so making it possible as a society to have the number of kids that people say they want to have, I think is an important goal that we should be taking seriously. I think things like child tax credits are, are a, a good way of getting at that. I think, the cost of housing, especially in a lot of areas where uh, like they're actually good jobs, is astronomical and a big barrier. You know, if, if you want to have a kid, sometimes just having a bigger house is really useful than, you know, house those kids. And so then if you're chosen, if you're trying to trade off between, oh, I like working in the big city, having my cool job, but I'd like to have another kid, but I couldn't afford to get a, a bigger house, then that, that forces people to make trade-offs that are sort of suboptimal, both for them and for the larger nation. And so I think taking housing costs seriously is another way that we can try to make it easier for people to have the number of kids they say they want to have. Andrew McAfee has a book, More From Less, where he basically argues that as countries um, get richer, uh, they um, you know uh, use more energy and emit. Um, but uh, they, there's a certain point by which they uh, get even more more rich and they uh, even richer, and they th that starts to uh, reverse. Basically, uh, consumption and energy usage starts to get uncoupled. Is there something similar, do you think, with fertility in the sense of like, if we had the growth that you know, Eli Dorado was, 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 you know, talks about that people would be you know, wealthy enough to afford bigger houses or be able to focus less on their careers, maybe because they're, you know, they feel, feel richer? Or do you think that's, that's unlikely? Yeah, I think that's, that's right. I mean, you could sort of think, I, I sometimes think about like, as a society gets richer, you can almost imagine it going up like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And so, you know, the first rate is like, can I get shelter? Can I get food? And then, uh, you know, you move on to, do I enjoy my job? Do I feel like it's safe working conditions? Do I enjoy my colleagues? You know, and then as it moves up and up, eventually you start to get to like self-actualization. And this is where like people's reported versus demonstrated uh, things can, can be different. And so it's, it's hard to say, you know, obviously I, I think we should try to make it easier for people to have the number of kids they say they want to have, but maybe it's just the fact that there are really hard trade-offs between, I want to feel very accomplished in my career uh, and I want to spend a lot of time uh, traveling, you know, in my early 20s. And I don't want to get married until I feel like I'm very settled in my career. Um, but then I also want to have three kids. And it, it's just really hard to do all of those things. And so I think, yeah, there are some broader cultural questions here. Um, I think some people have talked about yeah. you know, what's the difference between a, a capstone versus a cornerstone model of marriage. You know, are people waiting to get married until they feel like they have everything else in their life figured out? Um, or people, you know, using marriage as something that they can then build off of and use as a springboard to achieve all the other goals that they want to have in their life. And uh, those are really hard things to get out of policy and maybe not even the, the, the appropriate tools. Yeah, it's interesting in the sense of like how much of the, the self-actualization that you talk about is really self-driven or like relative driven. Totally, <laughs> and if it's totally. more relative driven, then no matter how wealthy we are, you know, we'll just keep. And then you, you, you can see evidence in the sense that yeah, the wealthiest people are the ones who are, you know, continuously working, the ones who are not getting married, you know, um, or not having kids, it seems. Yeah, it's totally true. And it's also true that I think a lot of these decisions are sort of like, yeah, driven by larger social circles. You know, I think everybody's familiar with the, the idea that, you know, in your group of friends circle, when you see everybody else is getting married, everyone else is having kids, maybe I should start thinking more seriously about that. Um, and so, I don't know, the self is not like this thing that just emerges. It's like a deep yeah. butterfly that needs to cocoon and then you discover it. It's this thing that's constantly being shaped and changed over time as you're learning more things about yourself as it's you're interacting with your, your friends and with your environment. Yeah, we'd think that social media, because people are always posting about weddings and, and babies, that it would have some effect in terms of uh, you know, encouraging other people to, to have, but maybe that effect is not strong enough to, uh, 
withstand all the all the other um, potentially I, i've seen uh some people suggest that you know maybe that would be a positive direction for facebook to go show less you know <laughs> news and culture war topics and just show more babies and weddings and puppies and whatnot yeah do you envision a world where the agglomeration effects that you talk about sort of benefits of talent clusters moves more digitally i personally you know in COVID, I, I've, I've seen that a lot of my you know intellectual and work conversations are now just in group chats and they're with people who are living in different places uh, around the world. Um, I'm curious if, if, if you think that will change significantly or if it'll revert back to, you know, what it was before. Yeah, um, it's a good question. I, I think certainly some parts of remote work are here to stay. Um, people like yeah, Adam Osmek and Matt Clancy have pointed out that, you know, even if we just move to a world where, say, before it was six, seven percent of the, the U.S. workforce was remote now to 20 percent. That, that is still itself a dramatic change that, you know, significantly changes traffic patterns and urban, urban, you know, centers and whatnot. I think also there might be a, like one of the biggest changes I would just guess a lot of, uh, especially knowledge workers are going to end up having more flexibility in terms of when they're going into the office. And so maybe it's now one or two days from home uh, and then, you know, three or four days in the office, which doesn't, you know, dramatically change some of the agglomeration effects because you're still presumably clustered in these big urban centers and you still have lots of time for those sort of, you know, soft office meetings where you can be exchanging ideas and maybe you can actually be more productive on, you know, the one or two days when you're home and you can, you know, do deep work on specific reports or, or whatnot. My guess though is that while there will be some changes, like the fundamental power of agglomeration clusters is not really going to change. Um, I just think they're they're too powerful and, and especially for firms that are really trying to compete on the global frontier of technology every ounce of productivity ends up getting magnified over a global market share. And so while for like firms that are mostly competing subnationally or nationally, you could maybe take a trade-off where your workers would prefer to take a 10% pay cut, but work remotely from wherever they want. Um, and maybe that makes them slightly less productive, but you're paying less and it's fine. Um, but on the international stage, it's just so much more competitive. And you really need to be on the absolute frontier of every margin to be competing in an efficient way that I, I think for a lot of these superstar firms, especially, you might see return to the office if it turns out that, that it's more productive. I think the other factor here is cities and urban clusters don't form just because of agglomeration effects of um, you know, stronger uh, you know, workplace productivity, but also because there's urban amenities that people like and because there are dating and marriage markets that people are trying to, to be part of in cities. And so even if you went to remote work in, in a fair bit of things, I still think you would have, you know, big urban cities where young people, you know, go to, um, to, to find potential marriage partners to work. And then once you already have some degree of clustering that's just natural for these kind of like social reasons, then almost the cost of in-person work is much lower. If, if work was the only reason people were clustering, then it would be a much higher bar to clear. But if people are already clustering for these social reasons, then you only need to be a little bit more productive to actually justify going to the office. That makes sense. In, in, as a closing question, uh, I'd like to name some thinkers, and I'd like you to identify a, a disagreement that you have with with any one of them. You don't have to do every single person. Um, the thinkers I'll name are uh, Maria Mazzucato, uh, Peter Thiel. Um, okay, so disagreement with Maria Mazzucato. Um, I think her book title and sort of the framing of the entrepreneurial state is just a fantastic idea, and it's, it's great branding, and the idea that the state should be ambitious and very proactive about trying to earnestly foster um, technologies and new uh, scientific advancements is completely correct. Um, I think the, the sometimes the way that she thinks about structuring some of these things doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, I, I don't know that there's a strong case for um, having government actually have like shares in the companies that they're investing in. In some sense, they're already going to be rewarded through higher tax revenue and higher economic growth rates if the companies are successful. And trying to tie in some of these government shares can lead to weird issues of corporate con uh, control or uh, how are these boards being structured or whatnot. So I think in broad strokes, like the idea, the framing, the, the importance of investment is spot on. I think the actual mechanics about how this should be run are, are kind of weird and wonky. Main disagreement with, with Peter Thiel, I think he has a lot of interesting things to say about state capacity. I think he's thinking on like immigration is totally weird and I do not understand why he's um, so averse. I, I think maybe he thinks the American project is a lot more fragile um, than I do or the extent to which America like as an ideal can be constantly changing or shifting a little bit as we bring in new scientists. Um, but I, I just think, yeah, he fundamentally misreads the economics of innovation and how important um, sort of the United States as a multi-ethnic liberal democracy is, is really important for our status as being the world's leader of innovation.
Do you, are you sympathetic with the idea that we used to be better um, at assimilating immigrants and now we've sort of like lost uh, confidence that we should uh, assimilate to, to American as opposed to, to, to this American idea as opposed to sort of, you know, uh, defer to whatever, whatever they, you know, not assimilate, I guess? Yeah, I think I think there's some concerns about, you know, like what's going on in, in like certain elite circles can be kind of weird and wonky. But I think overall, like broad based America is just as good at integration as we have been in the past. And actually, America is like much, much better at integration than like most other nations. I think trying to look at, you know, some of the difficulties that have been happening, say, from the Syrian refugee crisis are just fundamentally different, um, both because uh, the United States is just much better at integration um, as a society. And we're, we're much bigger, which also helps, too. Yeah. Uh, my guest today has been Caleb Watney, uh, Director of Innovation Policy at PPI. Uh, Caleb, for people who want to go deeper, uh, where can you point them? Yeah. So um, I post most everything on my Twitter feed. So I'm at Caleb Watney on Twitter. Um, I have a blog, um, agglomerations.tech, where you can check out a lot of these things. And then also on the PPI website, you can see some of my research papers. Awesome. Uh, Caleb, thanks for coming on. This has been a great episode. It's been great to chat, Eric. Thanks for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.